I'm going to be on a, a conference call for a while. Oh, so when are you eating? I ate a little bit, but then more later. Hi, Detlef. How are you? Hi, hi Katarina. Good. Um, yeah, thank you for opening up the room. <laughs> of course. Um, could you do me a favor and make me also a moderator? So you click on my picture and then there is uh, there are a few options on the bottom and one yeah. of it is, yeah, so I can yeah. take care of Cool. Thank you. Yeah, got it. How's your day going? How's everything in Germany, right? Good. Well, you know, pretty, the state of the world is not the greatest, but um, my own day has been pretty good. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, my parents uh, live in Germany. Also. Yeah. Mm. Hi, Cecile. How are you? Yeah, Hello. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Katerina. Hi, doc, Dr. Didlef. Just what it Did says there, Cecile. I hope it shows my first name, so. Yeah, yes. Didlef, yeah. Yeah. yeah, welcome to Science Society. Hi. Yeah, thank you so much for making it. And um, yeah, it's a great pleasure to have you. Um, I hope you'll enjoy it. We'll wait a few minutes for so people have time to arrive and then I'll introduce you to the audience and then the stage is yours for talking about your great research. Cool. Hi, Nick. Hey, how are you? Thank you for joining Clubhouse. And there's Gray. Hey, Gray. I'm unmuted now. Can you guys hear me? You are a bit quiet, Gray. Oh, um, okay, let's see. Yeah, no, that's that's better. Okay, all right, cool. How is everybody? Good. Good, how are you? Good. And nice to meet you, and, nice you know, you through voice, but still. <laughs> Thank yeah, you for is... making it. Of course, thanks for the invitation. This is my first time using Clubhouse or participating in uh, in Clubhouse, so decided to finally break the ice. Yeah, that's an honor. Thank you <laughs> for me <laughs> for for coming here the first time. I appreciate it. Yeah, Gray Gray actually has come up with uh, uh, quite a few really good ways to um, explain the work we did. I, I really like the metaphors that uh, Gray has come up with. They are, um, I, I use them a lot, Gray. Yeah, I like yours too. I think there's lots of, there's lots of nice metaphors to try to explain it. Um, or at least it's, it's helped me think about it too and understand. Kind yeah. Of, to conceptualize it, yeah. Hi, LT. Hello, hello. You have the, you have the little party head. I have a balloon. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. So how do I do that? How do I get a party hat? So... You don't. You don't. It's oh, okay. assigned to you. It's okay. Uh... Yeah, it's when you're new to Clubhouse. It's 
so people know you new, so they are like nicer to you. Uh-huh. And don't assume you know all the all the jargon, the clubhouse jargon that actually exists. So yeah. <laughs> nice. That's all. It's okay. I've been here for a year. I still don't know a lot of things. It's okay. <laughs> we saw without mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so what is so maybe can this yeah, what so what's what's the clubhouse what's the like one minute explanation of what Clubhouse is all about? Like what's yeah, what's uh what what's it all about basically? So it's a audio social media, so um it's a different way of interacting so it's not text it's audio i think that's the biggest difference that's cool and yeah so it gets more i i think it sticks more the conversation since it's audio and kind of people um, generate friendships and um and things like that more easily since it's more personal since it's audio i think yeah and it's not i guess like the thing about text like Twitter or something, it's like very, you only get like a few number of letters. So it's hard to like have, like explain something complex, like mutation bias. <laughs> yeah, it's very interactive and the retort is immediate. So yeah, you mm-hmm. will experience some interaction with the audience. It's like a huge, it's like just a phone call to a huge number of audience. And where, when there is a lot, of uh, people in the audience one of my friends told me during the early days of clubhouse it's just like experiencing a thousand hugs yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. so cool. but for a niche community it uh, um, it encourages discussion and also learning um even you know from very technical or high science topics for enthusiasts so we really appreciate this app and i hope you will get to enjoy it Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, when you come back again, you know, to be a guest. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so I can start introducing you, and then um, yeah, I'm sorry for the background noise. Like the the offices are so full everywhere because everyone is going back to work. So um, <laughs> and I I'm sitting outside, so it's in the city. Okay. Loud. I'm sorry, nice. <laughs> but. No yeah okay so um yeah again welcome to the science society everyone um so today we have our guest speakers um detlef uh, weigel and Gren, uh, gray monroe and um yeah it's it's a great pleasure to have you and just to give you some background information about our guest speakers um detlef weigel he was an undergrad um, in biology and chemistry at the University of Bielefeld in uh, Köln. And he graduated uh, in biology. Um, he worked back then with a Drosophila neurogenesis. And then he moved to the Max Planck Institute uh, for Developmental Biology in Tübingen, where he did his PhD. And um, and then he be, then he began to work with plants during his postdoc research um, at Caltech with uh, Elliot Meyerowitz, and um, yeah, that's where he started to work with uh, with the plant model Arab- Arabidopsis thaliana, and um, 
later on, he was assistant prof associate professor at the Salk Institute. And And yeah, and now to give you some background information about Gray Monroe, he, um, he did his uh, Bachelor in Science in Biology with some of them laude at the Appalachian in State University. Um, he, uh, his work was about evolution of centromeres. And um, he did his PhD in ecology at Colorado State um, University. And um, now, and then he did a post a doc uh, with uh, Detlef Weigel. That's how they know each other and did this work together. And um, now he's assistant professor of climate adaptation and plant genomics at the University of California, Davis. So, yeah, thank you so much. And both um, got a lot of awards <laughs> numerous awards so yeah it's a great pleasure to have you and the stage is yours thank you thanks for having us thank you katarina it's uh, really fun to be here great great you want to start by um going a little bit through the history how you got into this maybe you know the work that you did as a doctoral researcher already at colorado state where you got interested in mutations that take out entire genes and that uh, surprisingly um, can have very prominent roles in adaptation to the environment. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I guess, I don't know, yeah, I'm not sure if you guys have read the papers or stuff, but I'll, I'll, I can kind of give you a background of what, you know, what, how this, this came about. So um, while I was a grad student, I became, you know, well, I guess we'll start with this, you know, mutations are changes in DNA and they are the, the starting point of all genetic variation. So whether good or bad, it all genetic variation all starts with the mutation. Um, and in grad school, I got interested in mutations that actually break genes. So mutations that cause genes to stop working. And normally we assume that those are going to be harmful, but in some cases it turns out um, we were studying plants there's many cases where breaking a gene can actually be beneficial. So this was kind of surprising and interesting. Um, and I've been looking at different show this pattern. Um, and then this is kind of related to what what started when I was a postdoc um, with Detlef, um, still interested in kind of mutations and, ver and genetic variation. Um, and the project that unfolded was kind of an accidental discovery, basically. Um, never really intended to be studying how mutation rate differs between different regions of the genome. Um, and, and, and great, maybe just to quickly interject there, yeah. you know, I always say if uh, we had started with the hypothesis that, you know, essential genes mutate less than non-essential genes, I think everybody, you know, would have thought we are crazy. And I yeah. think we ourselves would have thought this is really a lunatic idea. Yeah, exactly. The only way we like found ourselves thinking that it was true is just because we accidentally found it, basically. Um, because it is surprising. Because we've all been kind of growing up on the on the phrase that you know mutations are random, and there's not the they're not uh, you know there's no preference for good mutations to happen or, or preference against harmful mutations to happen. So, for example, genes that are the most 
important. We wouldn't expect them to mutate less by any kind of way. Um, but it turns out, as with most things in biology, it's often more complex than we originally thought. And what we found is that the, uh, the genome is regulating itself in a much more interesting and, and elegant way through molecular processes that, that's allowing for these cool, uh, these cool mutation biases to exist. Um, so yeah, I guess that's kind of the connection where this started, because there was a graduate student in Detlef's lab, Tanvi Srikant, who's the second author on this paper that we recently published. And she, um, she was showing some cool data about how the genome is structured in a molecular way. And it kind of led to a little light bulb that went off that said, hey, I wonder if that has any you know, effect on mutation rate. And after like a little afternoon of doing some data analysis of some existing mutation data, we found this pattern that was really compelling and really strong. Of course, we were skeptical of it, and so for the next uh, you know, three years was essentially seeing if that was true, if this mutation rate bias was was really was really what was going on, or whether it was some kind of artifact. And so for for three years, we kind of dissected it and added lots of data and lots of people. This paper that we published has authors from I think nine institutes in four countries, and so it's been this big turned into this big project because we really wanted to make sure that we were uh, you know on the right track. And 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 Gray, I think what's important to to mention also that um, it was not exactly trivial to um, show this because uh, one cannot easily show this um, directly because genes that are important for the organism to survive um, is very difficult to see mutations uh, in these genes because by definition, um, at least when they um, are completely missing from the organism, the organism um, dies. And so the um, important insight was really that uh, there are now enough data that one can model the probability that different sites in the genome mutate. And that's really what you did, Gray, that um, you integrated um, a lot of data. And that's also, you know, thank you to all the wonderful people who have shared, shared all these uh, fantastic epigenetic data sets. So you integrated um, these uh, epigenetic data sets with mutations that we actually observed which were thousands, which, which are a lot, but in the big scheme of things, that's still a somewhat small um, number. But uh, using these sophisticated models, which you then, of course, validated in many different ways, you could then literally go to every base in the genome, and the genome has 100 million bases in Arvidopsis thayana, and then calculate for every base how likely was it that it mutated. And that was really the key insight that allowed you to then look, you know, do genes mutate at different rates, then uh, sequences the outside genes, and then eventually do genes that are particularly important for the survival of the organism, do they mutate at, uh, at different rates? And I think there has been quite some confusion um, when people only see the headlines. Um, of course, they automatically assume that this is all based only on direct observations. And um, this, this modeling was really an important part of it. Yeah, that was kind of an aha moment when we realized that this mutation rate was, was so strongly predicted by the epigenome. And so for those, maybe those who aren't in the, have a biology background, when we talk about the epigenome, we're talking about the, 
um, the chem so when you look in inside of a, a nucleus of a cell and you look at the DNA, you, you'd find that in, in our cells and in plants and animals, the DNA is wrapped around these proteins um, in these little balls, like beads on a string kind of um, image in your head. And on those beads, they can be chemically modified by, by other proteins. And so those chemical modifications on the beads on which the string is coiled, the DNA is coiled around, those marks are what we what we're talking about by the epigenome. And there's lots of data that describes how the epigenome is differs between different places in the genome. So imagine, you know, beads on a string and the and the beads are different colors. And so you could look at it and say, and so it turns out that in in animal and plant genomes that the beads that are found within genes, so the places in the genome that actually code for proteins and the ones that are responsible for the most important functions, for example, you can think of them as in, in your head as like having a different color. Like they just look different from the perspective of the epigenome. And so this is the critical uh, insight that, that we realize allows for those genes to be recognized and uh, receive like beneficial uh, reduction in mutation rate. You take a question? Yeah. So um, I just thought about this as I was listening. I wasn't I joined maybe for the last five minutes, but um, this is something that um, I developed an intuition, a natural intuition, and I really like uh, topics like this. So in terms of obviously, because I don't, I'm not in the field. I will just use analogies rather than. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll use two analogies. The, the way I see mm -hmm. it is. Uh, Genes can really uh, biology, but biology can impact quite drastically. To play with uh, what you just said, to play with what you just said, uh, someone is breathing into the microphone very loudly. Right. So to play. To yeah. Play yeah. So, so what you earlier, just said. So, so genes are biology. That then the biology affect genes again. I think this is one of the super fascinating things about biology that a lot of it is um, uh, um, recursive. And I think that's that's totally spot on. And that's really in, you know, in, in, in key insight in, in evolution that there are always these uh, feedbacks. Yeah. So it's right. like, I think I like the, uh, the quote by the famous evolutionary biologist um, Dobjansky, he says that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. But I think when we think about mutation, it's also true that nothing in, in evolution makes sense except in the light of biology. So understanding the biology of the genome is also critical for understanding the evolution, especially when it comes to mutation, I think. So I think you're, you're spot on with your intuition. Right, right. So I'll have a, the question is basically, I'll play, I'll try to leverage into two analogies. So one is let's consider biology top down right and genetics bottom up you know to use a psychology slash psychiatry uh, kind of analogy approach but um here let, let's play with this analogy and tell me if i uh, if i have the wrong intuition but in terms of random mutations let's use a political but only as an analogy not that i'm talking about politics just like a political or geopolitical analogy in terms of of understanding let's say the totality of our being you know being organ uh, uh, like uh, micro um, uh, affects like uh, genetics how could that impact uh, the totality of the being so this is the globalism you know and then localism so uh, sometimes uh, not everything let's say is in direct communication like a gene mutation 
and the purpose, right, of the totality of the being, the entities that we are. So because of that, it will make local changes, not maybe even like adapting, you know what I mean? So for example, if the mitochondria is exposed to high energy intake, it will spin out of control so much so that uh, at least as a, the cell is concerned, it's just healing. But it could spin so much so out of control that it will mutate and replicate itself, uh, you know, until you get zombie-like or cancerous cells. So how could we, let's say, reduce uh, gene expression or even gene mutation locally rather than just uh, in terms of uh, how what our function is? Like, for example, a mole, uh, HPV viruses. Could we reverse engineer viruses in order to reduce uh, gene expression or gene mutations? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll try to answer. So I think, I mean, yeah, I guess one way I'm kind of interpreting the metaphor is like these sort of alternative, you know, versions of historical assessment, you know, trends and forces versus, uh, you know, personality of individuals. And I think, you know, what we're sort of sensing is that there's a lot of, in the genome, when it comes to mutation, there's the, the global scale, the sort of trends and forces are that, you know, genes that are expressed a lot tend to get mutated less because of this general phenomenon. But can we... I think the question is, if I'm understanding, is like, can we, can we in, instead sort of leverage our understanding to then go and, and manipulate the mutation rate of specific genes and reduce them? Is that is that what you're getting at? Uh, my approach was uh, more locally in terms of our body. So our body, let's say our body is something global and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, see, certain genes. Yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, I think that if we understand the mechanism of how genes are preferentially repaired then i think that it's not it's not implausible that it would be possible to develop interventions that could leverage those mechanisms to then preferentially change the mutation distribution in specific tissues i think that's probably within reason i don't think that it's like imminently doable because I still think our mechanism, the mechanistic understanding needs to be advanced before we can take advantage of that. But I think the, our, our understanding of the way that DNA repair refer, preferentially recognizes and fixes certain genes is like growing constantly, especially in the realm of cancer genomics. People are making incredible advances there about understanding how that works. I don't know. What do you think, Detlef? Sorry, I had to find the button to unmute myself. Um, yes, so, so one of the most fascinating um, uh, aspects of, of, of your discovery, Gray, is really at what scale this changes. So coming back to, you know, what we just heard. So initially, you know, through what you said, mutations are, you know, major fuel of um, evolution. And it's the um, mutations that actually led to mutation bias to um, evolve. And uh, for me, one of the most interesting questions is how quickly does that uh, um, change? So how, how quickly does uh, a, a gene experience lower mutation rates and how quickly can it perhaps revert to higher mutation rates uh, again? And um, at, at what time scale can, time scales can this happen? And I think the most fascinating question is, can any of this be uh, regulated by the environment um, directly? So adaptation, you know, 
over the span of generations, tens or hundreds or even thousands of generations, is something that we can easily imagine. But what if this uh, was due um, directly to environmental factors? And this, of course, sounds a little bit crazy, but we know that, for example, the human immune system, um, it relies very much on very localized uh, mutagenesis. And um, that's um, clearly stimulated by the um, environment. Um, depends on what pathogens we are exposed to um, that uh, leads to turnover in the immune system that leads to activation um, of these pathways. So I think it's not an extreme stretch to, to think that this might pop up in um, other areas as well, although it probably is more subtle there. Yeah, Another agree. brief question, if I may. I really like your intuition, uh, um, Dr. D Detlef, uh, about how you correlated it with um, the immune system. Uh, and I have a question for the both of you, please, if I may indulge with my last question. It's, um, is there any correlation in uh, yes, the way cells act, in the way that cells act and uh, gene, genes express themselves? For example, let's say the Y receptors in the nose, right? Is there any way we could, uh, let's say, spread uh, or even try to mutate, uh, try to find uh, mutations that we could engineer in order to uh, like sprinkle, uh, basically not to over um, energize mitochondria, you know what I mean? Not to um, allow mitochondria to spin out of control. Is there any way we could have a, a chain reaction, in, you know, to, to spread all that uh, high energy intake that might translate into uh, mitochondria hyperdrive? I, I think the simple answer is that the power of evolution should not be um, underestimated, that almost anything can can evolve. It just depends on how long it will take. I mean, if you compare, you know, life on Earth as it is today and as it was three billion um, years ago, if there had been an observer uh, three billion years ago, who would have predicted that you know, the uh, um, surface of the earth would look so uh, so different um, today. So I, I, the, the, the easy answer is that uh, evolution can do almost um, anything. It's just for us humans um, essentially impossible to imagine what that will uh, look like because there are so many different paths for evolution to go. Yeah, I think, yeah, along the same line, I think um, we should, I think that there's, uh, biology is, in, in the same way, you know, biology is, is incredibly complex and, and elegant, and, uh, you know, I think that this is why I think understanding, you know, what how the biology of the genome works is critical. So for those types of ideas of leveraging, uh, you know, uh, trying to, to engineer things, I think, yeah, understanding how things work. And, and how they evolved, too, is also important because understanding how they evolved tells us something about how they work as well. So studying both the mechanisms of genome biology and the evolution, I think, are, are important for even, even sort of thinking about those types of applied uh, uh, approaches.
So, so if there are no um, immediate um, immediate questions, uh, so so first, thank you for for these uh, um, um, questions and these interesting ideas. Um, if there are not immediate questions from the um, audience, Gray, maybe we can discuss a little bit the direction that this work um, um, could go. Looking at uh, looking at mutation bias, not just in Arabidopsis thiana, but in many different uh, many different systems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what you said earlier about the environment is is I I totally agree. I think um, thinking about how the environment can change mutation rates in different genes is really interesting and and has a lot of cool evolutionary implications because if if the if what we found is that mutation rate is affected by which genes are getting turned on and off, then it suggests by sort of deduction, we can arrive at the hypothesis that like, if the environment changes and genes are getting turned off or getting turned on, their mutation rates can change. And so for evolution, that's quite cool, but also for like human health and, and other things, because if, if the, we know that mutations are the source of things like cancer, and so understanding how they, what, whether they happen more often than not as a product of the environment could be really interesting. I don't know, what else are you thinking, Detlef? Yeah, I mean, we we already know that, you know, the environment, um, uh, both in the body and also the outside environment, uh, affects uh, mutation um, rates. So not necessarily the mutation bias that uh, we've ob observed in Arabidopsis cyana, but certainly the spectrum of uh, mutation. So, for example, in, in cancer, which you alluded to, it's uh, very clear they have these different signatures of mutations, and so you can actually in part tell from the signature that a cancer has what was the original tissue it came from, and that's almost certainly due to the different epigenetic landscape and the activity of genes and in different uh, tissues. In Arabidopsis, there's nice uh, work from uh, Nick Harvard, for example, that when you stress plants, that mutation rates generally go up. I think that would be super interesting to ask if you stress the plants in uh, different ways, whether there is a direction in which mutation bias, for example, um, changes. So just thinking about this ratio of mutations in essential and non-essential genes, can that ratio be shifted um, by the environment? Um, I think it will be um, it would be really surprising if the environment wouldn't shift um, this 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 balance. And would you speak a bit about uh, high energy intake, maybe in cancer. Is there uh, you know findings about high energy intake being correlated with cancer or mutation, cancerous mutation? Um, I'm not familiar enough with that literature, so. Um, I, I just read something super um, interesting that um, uh, um, sugar, for example, um, can um, uh, sugar metabolism can affect uh, mutation rates. So I think that would be sort of related to what you were just saying. Yeah, or, I mean, certainly like high energy radio. I mean, obviously we know that you know sunlight, high energy UV radiation can damage DNA. So that's obviously a mutagenic, you know, um, that's high energy, you know, radi basically solar radiation can be mutagenic. So I think that that's, that's known. Um, and I think that different types of 
so I think we, yeah, so it's been shown also that, you know, different types of uh, DNA damage lead to different types of mutations as well. A quick follow-up question, and this is actually a personal curiosity, but I think it's helpful for the community as well. Uh, could you bust the myth of, uh, uh, you know, the, the basically until recently, fairly recently, the um, consensus in the academia, in, in the academic world, was that uh, us human beings, we inherit 100% of the mitochondria from our mothers. Could you bust that myth one more time? I, yeah, is that, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with the literature there that that's been, that that's been disrupted. I mean, you know, biology is always full of surprises. So it's, it, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some deviation from 100% of, of anything, but um, yeah, I don't know. Detlef, do you know more about that? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, you know, that that's one of the things that for scientists makes it always uh, um, difficult because you can never, you know, exclude uh, um, anything. So just because it has not been observed doesn't mean it uh, it uh, can't happen. So again, I'm less familiar with uh, um, animal genetics, but I don't find that entirely surprising that um, sometimes uh, mitochondria from from the father get transmitted as uh, as well. Yeah, there was a paper I think like couple of years ago that said that showed that in very like very few cases exception cases but um that's all i also know about that yep mm -hmm. yeah and i think i think there are some 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 plants also where that uh happens but i don't have that at the you know right now uh, uh at the tip of my whatever so it is um wouldn't it be a, a massive insight into, uh, like, for example, things that could spin out of control, such as mitochondria uh, correlated with high energy intake? Uh, like, wouldn't it be a good predictor and indicator at the same time of someone being uh, predisposed to cancer by knowing more about the mother? I don't know. I don't know. I have an answer for you, Andrew, if you let me. I mean, Katrina, are you fine? that I can respond to Andrew. So um, yeah, respond sure. really quick. So in the case of the mitochondrial, so in a certain age, for example, 20, 30, I mean, by increasing the age, we're going to lose the, I mean, huge amount of the mitochondrial function. And the main one is the NAD plus as a component, because we know that inside the mitochondria, we have a different complexes because you talk about uh, energy mechanism and mitochondrial is necessarily for the i mean uh, oxidative reaction and we are familiar with the ros which is the i mean uh, we know that it's damaged the cells and the fun function of the cells so for example it might be when you are 30 years old or 20 years old you're gonna lose something i don't know exactly the number 25 kilogram of your nad plus or NAD, which is very important for the mitochondrial. So when we want to just, uh, I mean, find out the significance or relationship between the mitochondrial loss or, I mean, kind of uh, susceptibility to the cancer or such a thing, it can make sense. I mean, I'm sure that you can find lots of paper out there that they had a conversation around that. Is there a correlation with increasing NAD and nicotine smokers, you know? 
Um, it's a little bit off topic. Can we, I mean, yeah, yeah there's a correlation between like nicotine, I'm not sure, but um, NMN and stuff that's the yes. Sinclair's lab research. It's but the variation we'll is going to decrease. Ask, ask her question now and then we, we move on. Sure. Can I ask my question then? So I had a question about, I mean, Detlef, am I right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, my question is about the rate of the mutation, because as as much as we have expression, we have less mm -hmm. mutation, as you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we want to compare the brain cell versus somatic cell, so what is the number or the range that you can just give, give it to me for both of them in comparison with each other? Yeah, so, yeah. So, so um, a big a big impact in uh, mutation is, of course, you know, doing DNA replication. So that's pretty well established. And um, when we think about mutation rate, we both think about mutation rate from one generation of an organism to the other generation of an organism, but also the number of um, cell divisions. And so, for example, in uh, the plant that we study, Arabidopsis, we assume that there are about um, 30 cell divisions from one generation to the next. And so, so you can... 10 power what number? So, so um, we find um, from one generation to the next something on the order of uh, ten to the minus nine. Then you can, you know, de divide that uh, to by um, uh, so, sorry ten to the minus uh, eight. You can divide that by thirty. So then you are uh, three times ten to the minus uh, ten or so per. Um, Gen cellular generation. And so, so these mutation rates, they are not wildly different between different organisms. There are some organisms that have exceptionally low mutation rates, but most uh, have mutation rates that are in a similar um, ballpark. And so that would mean for human cells that there is um, one mutation approximately for every round of um, cell division. And so that, you know, works out quite quite well so i don't know exactly what is the number of cell divisions that for example our germline goes through but um, the literature uh, is that we uh, inherit from our parents or mutations that happen in the germline of our um, parents it's on the order to 50 uh, on the order of 50 to 100 new um, mutations that we have that our um, parents didn't have. So I think it's, it's really super interesting what you ask in terms of brain cells versus other cells in the body because, uh, you know, most brain cells do, do, not, um, do not divide. So do they, um, is that an advantage or, or is that a um, um, disadvantage? I, um, I haven't thought about this. Uh, Gray, what do you think? Is it an advantage or is it a disadvantage not to, not to divide in terms of uh, mutations? Well, I think you're right that because DNA replication is one of the main sources of mutation because it's kind of a, it's an imperfect process that, that when DNA is trying to replicate, new base pairs are being added and sometimes it, the wrong one gets added and so that's a, that can cause a mutation. So if, if in the la in the absence of DNA cell division and therefore DNA replication, I would suspect that the mutation rate would be lower. Though I'm not I'm not quite qualified to speak to the mutation rate in brain cells versus other cells because I just don't know. Um, but it seems like from a mutation perspective, there would be some some advantage of being sort of quiet from a DNA replication. So, so, we have so, more so, express so. there. I know that we have more express in the brain cell, especially. 
especially it's late in the cortical area and it's more mm -hmm. in the subcortical area. That's why I mean, yeah. the yeah, so, so is I, less. Yeah, I, I recently asked somebody who works on DNA repair, on the mechanism of DNA repair, and specifically um, transcription coupled DNA repair. And I uh, asked him whether, you know, what's the balance? So transcription is mutagenic because when there's, a when there's transcription, the DNA is unwound and single-stranded DNA is no more vulnerable to mutation. But then also there is transcription coupled repair because if they are mutation, it stops the transcription machinery. So, you know, the cell has evolved mechanism to, uh, when that happens, to recruit DNA re repair machinery to fix this error so transcription can continue. And so anyway, so I asked the specialist, you know, what's the balance? Is um, uh, transcription, what's, what's the net effect on mutation? Does transcription cause more mutation or does it help to fix more mutation? And so he uh, didn't know. Uh, Gray, have you looked into this literature whether transcription on balance is more likely to favor mutations or to reduce mutations? I think it's hard to actually say because transcription itself, as you said, is probably mutagenic because it causes everything to be single-stranded during, during transcription. Though I think that the, the, the levels of the, the levels of complexity are very deep because transcription also promotes different epigenomic marks and those marks mm -hmm. might be serving as signals for other repairs. So in addition to direct transcription coupled repair that are things that are repair mechanisms that are sort of riding alongside rep DNA transcription, or, yeah, transcription itself, you also have the, the addition and sort of enrichment for epigenomic features like these histone mm -hmm. modifications, these chemical marks that I've been talking about that these are increasing as a product of transcription as well, which are recruiting other repairs. So I think it's like, it's very, it's, 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 uh, there's lots of interacting parts going on. And yeah, also DNA repair is very, it's a very complex, there's, well, there's, there's just many different types of repair. So there's many different ways that repair can happen. Um, and I think that as we understand that stuff better, uh, we'll be able to, this relationship, the relationship between gene expression and mutation, I think is going to become clearer at the more we learn about all of yeah. the different molecular processes that are happening. I mean, one of the things right, that is actually surprising, so as I alluded to earlier, there are some species that have really low mutation rate, and I think it's generally um, accepted by evolutionary biologists that mutation rate is not as low as it biochemically um, could be. So, um, and also hasn't the been... percentile to the mass, like whales. No, no, in terms of so, so mutation rate, I think theoretically could be something like you know 10 to the minus uh, 11 or so, but uh, in practice, it's uh, more in the range of 10 to the minus 8 to 10 to the minus 8, so actually two to three orders of magnitude higher than what biochemically should be possible, which is right. um, uh, quite, quite remarkable. Yeah, you mean yeah. eukaryotes or prokaryotes? Which one? I, um, I think anywhere. Between okay. the two, I think, across the, all the sort of tree of life from, from eukaryotes to prokaryotes. I think mm -hmm. in, in generally, I think what we, people have found is that in, in prokaryotes and so in um, <clears throat> bacteria, they have a lower mutation rate generally than eukaryotes um they have much smaller genomes and there's many there's, so that's i mean this is a this is a question you know this is something that people have been interested in trying to answer for quite a while is like why do we see differences in mutation rate between different species um 
and there's been a lot of cool work there. But yeah, it raises some interesting questions about about why you know why is the mutation rate higher in species than it could be otherwise. You know, it could be lower, but it's not. So that's kind of an interesting question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And and I think that also comes this you know this idea of you know recursive events uh, um, that or, or rec recursive phenomena comes uh, in there again. So um, the organism obviously can't look into the future, right? So the organism cannot quote unquote know what mutation will be um, favorable. Um, but that concept is you know as I said is is sort of demolished a little bit when you look at things like enhanced mutagenesis in the um, vertebrate immune system. So obviously um, the vertebrates have quote unquote learned through evolution that there are regions in the genome where it helps to increase um, mutation rate. I mean, it's it's a great. This is actually, you know, so so I have to admit that I hadn't, you know, before um, your work, I hadn't really, you know, thought about this a whole lot. But in hindsight, I find it actually somewhat surprising that you know quite a few people uh, uh, reacted sort of allergically to this idea of um, mutation uh, rate uh, varying along the genome according to functional annotation of genes because, again, the vertebrate immune system is such a super prominent, uh, prominent example. Do, do you, yeah. when, when you talk about this, do you ever bring this up, Gray? Um, yeah, it does come up. Um, it does, yeah, because that's a really beautiful and well-known example of how the, in, yeah, so in, in immune genes, you know, in, in, in immune cells, you know, there's this very targeted mutagenic process. So clearly, like, biology and evolution can find solutions that, that deviate really strongly from this sort of a, a random mutation. You know, I think, I think that the kind of allergic reaction from some people about the idea that mutations aren't random is, I, I think it's sort of just a historical, I think it's a product of the history of the way that mutations have been spoken about for the last century, basically, where, I mean, you know, I think the title of this clubhouse is something about, you know, mutations being not random, which, you know, it sounds kind of controversial, but in a way, it's sort of, it's almost an obvious thing that, you know, random um, mutation, which is something that has been said for so long, I think has been a substitute for we don't understand why some mutations happen more than others, so we can call them random. But now our understanding of the biology is just so much richer than it was a century ago when those kind of phrases got stamped into textbooks and have been passed along that now it's a little, it's just sort of an, it's almost just a little outdated for us to, to sort of describe things as random when, when we know what's going on, you know, it's not, it's not a, there's nothing, there's nothing mystically random about mutation. They're governed by, you know, molecular processes. So I think it's, some of the reaction I think is largely from, just uh, you know, trying to we have to sort of over you know get past like a lot of like the the, the terminology around randomness and mutation. I think. Uh, some yeah, of and, and, some and 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 Gray, I I really love this um uh, um analogy that you came up for for Science Friday, where you oh, said yeah. you know it's uh, kind of like a car factory, so it 
totally you know makes sense that in a car factory of course um, errors in the assembly and the making of a car that they will happen anywhere but it makes perfect sense that the car manufacturer pays a lot more attention to any errors or mistake in the engine of the car than some you know whatever plastic doohickey in the trunk that you can't really see anyway so um, and uh, why shouldn't it be the same in the genome yeah. It just said, and, and that's really is the key insight of uh, this paper that we just published. So in, in, in hindsight, I, I know that, you know, also how we advertise it in terms of um, mutation rates varying between essential and non-essential genes, so not being random in, 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 in that way, this was always front and center. But I think really the key discovery uh, is that the cell has found a way of marking genes that are particularly um, important, so these epigenetic marks, and therefore that the cell can recognize all these genes as a class to be different from um, other genes. And that's, that's again, that's, uh, we come back to what you said in the beginning, that was this original observation. And, um, I think there would have been no reason actually to come up with this hypothesis that essential genes are somehow marked differently than non-essential uh, non-essential genes. So uh, w when you think about this ideal of how science progresses, you know, with specific hypotheses, um, in this case, it was really uh, much more having an open mind and um, yeah, just uh, just uh, letting the data speak for themselves. Right. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. I don't think we would have we would have come out this expecting to find what we did. It's just sort of you know it's one mm -hmm. of those fun one of those fun kind of scientific experiences where you you just stumble across something that's really compelling. Yeah. It, it pulls you yeah. in. You know. Although I think what's also, it's one thing great that I, you know, I, I kicked myself a little bit that we didn't mention that in the, in, in the paper, that when, you know, so we talked about the vertebrate immune system, but there's actually really nice work in a number of other systems, so especially uh, plant pathogens. And I see, you know, one of our colleagues, uh, Nick Grunwald is here. Uh, in, in, in the clubhouse uh, session, he's working on, on these. So on the plant pathogens for quite a while, there is this idea of uh, what's called the two-speed genome, where there are parts of the genome that uh, evolve faster. And um, those parts of the genome often contain the genes that the pathogen uses to attack its, uh, um, its host. Yeah, we yeah. had also a uh, Dr. Krasileva here, Krenia Krasileva. She said she mm -hmm. she knows you too. I don't know mm -hmm. from Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, that also yeah, 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 yeah. She was she was she was on your she she was uh, with you what like uh, a week or two weeks ago, right? Yeah, Xenia. yeah, a week ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and she she does really super cool work. Yeah, it was a bad coincidence. It was the day the mm -hmm. Russians attacked. The Ukraine, mm. so she was kind mm. of, you know, worried. But yeah, yeah it was probably a difficult uh, day for her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, so once you, you know, once you uh, allow yourself to accept <laughs> to accept what we discovered, and then you look around and say, oh yeah, there's 
yeah, there is actually quite a bit of uh, um, uh, other evidence that, you know, not exactly the same, but evidence that really goes in the, um, in the same direction. Yeah, I think it's almost, it's almost sort of once you sort of take a step back and you look at it, it's like almost obvious, you know, that this would, that this would evolve and, and, and exist. And it's, it's not so, which is kind of one of the fun, you know, this you, you sort of was, was, well, thinking about this has been helpful because it's sort of a, you know, a sanity check. It's like, okay, well, you know, this isn't that crazy. It's actually quite makes, makes perfect sense, you know, so it's kind of nice to be able to look at all these other cool examples that have been described where people are finding other, you know, other examples of biology where it's found solutions to uh to to mutation that that lead to these these cool non-random patterns as well so it's always nice to like see that to feel like okay we're on to we're on to something that that's that's consistent with what other people are finding as well hi everybody and detlef thanks for mentioning the two-speed uh, genome hypothesis so i have a question for for uh, both gray and detlef um i'm wondering um if, if you hypothesize what the mechanism might be for maintaining that mutation bias and maybe the opening the door for evolution to occur when a population is stressed or when, when the environment changes and the plant community needs to adapt much faster, or I mean the population needs to adapt much faster. Any yeah, on yeah that? I, I think I, I think this is definitely the next direction to go to, to study at scale, both um, what happens in different environments in terms of uh, global mutation rate, but then also mutation bias, and then really the genetic underpinning. So I think the genetics is going to lead the way. And in, in our paper, we had already, you know, some um, uh, there was already some indication that there is a genetic basis because we looked at uh, spontaneous mutations in different strains of Aurodopsis thayana that come from different uh, places in the world, and there were clearly differences in the mutation uh, spectrum. Now, finding these differences does not necessarily mean they are adaptive. So, you know, a lot of things vary in, in nature without them necessarily being adaptive. But even if they are not adaptive, if there's genetic variation, if we can find the genes responsible for this variation, I, I think that's going to be a really nice entree into yep. um, the mechanism. Yeah, I agree. And then as for the mechanism, I think we can gain a lot of we can we can arrive at some pretty compelling hypotheses by looking at what's known in humans, for example. So in humans, we all have a mismatch repair gene that has a domain in it, a protein domain that recognizes a certain histone modification, and that's what leads it to preferentially um, bind and repair gene bodies in human cells. Um, and so there's a that's a really compelling case of uh, of what's what's possible um that you can have repair genes that have domains that recognize the epigenome and that serves as a mechanism of preferentially repairing certain regions and we've looked in, in plants and it seems to be different but i think it gives us a good clue about what might might be possible um and then as far as responding to stress i think that leads yeah that's a that's an awesome idea and question i you know because the epigenome itself shifts as a function of the environment, then it leads to, leads one to wonder about if it's if under stressful conditions, how does the epigenome change and therefore shift the mutation bias? So, I mean, these are all just awesome questions that I'm looking forward to seeing uh, being answered in the next you know few years or so. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so some of the you know most exciting ideas in that direction actually come from transposon biology, and of course, transposons are very relevant to this um, two-speed genome. So, um, a friend of mine, Yurek uh, um, Pashkovsky, a number of years ago, um, they had found that there are transposons that have um, elements that are heat responsive, and they call these transposons onsens. You know, for the Japanese hot springs. And so what they proposed, I think in the end, um, they, 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 um, uh, they couldn't show this um, 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 directly because they you know, weren't able to do the experiments long enough, but I think super compelling idea. So plant is under heat stress, then these transposons are mobilized because they have heat response elements. They can then insert somewhere else and they can make other genes heat responsive and so making you know other genes heat responsive could uh, um, be helpful in adaptation now depends a little bit how these transposons insert do they you know insert entirely randomly across the genome um, or not we know that you know transposons generally do not insert um, entirely randomly so you also have to take that into account but i think that would be a really nifty uh, um, a mechanism how to uh, translate an environmental change into uh, making the gene complement in a genome behave differently and specifically tailored to that environmental change. Yep. Um, I want. So Dennis, uh, you came and LT, you came to the stage. Do you have um, a question? Thanks, Katarina. Yeah, I did have, it's uh, maybe a little bit of a high level question, but so given that uh, there are 3 billion base pairs in the human genome and there's an error rate, I don't remember what it is. Um, and for example, in a giant sequoia genome, there's 26.5 billion base pairs. So just in terms mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, how many base pairs are in this organism and is there any sort of error rate that you were able to, to look at or, you know, if you had even considered it. I understand mm -hmm. outside of the scope. Yeah, but. yeah. So, 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 actually, what's uh, sort of interesting is that. Uh, so, so you might think, you know, so what happens if you have, you know, a much larger um, uh, genome? So, actually, when it comes to eukaryotes, um, eukaryotes have uh, a, a relatively small range of genes. So, it's normally on the order of thirty thousand, give or take. So, it can be twenty thousand, can be forty thousand, but so ballpark is um, thirty thousand. And the size of uh, um, proteins is on average pretty similar so the coding the, the the portion of the genome that codes for proteins that actually doesn't change a whole lot so it's remarkably similar between Aridopsis thayana with its 100 million base pair genome and corn or humans with 3 billion um, base pair genomes so that means um, the mutation rate per base pair um, uh, scaling uh, is perfectly fine, so um, it doesn't have to be, you know, any 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 lower the mutation rate in a human or maize genome. The chance that it will, you know, hit um, a, a gene and uh, change coding sequence will actually stay the same, and that's why there is actually not as much variation 
in uh, mutation rate as one might think. Great, did I get this about right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I think like as genome size scale, so the 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 mutation rate generally, you know, it's it's a per base pair unit, and I think across different genome sizes, I, I, I'd have to check, but I think there's there's certainly differences between species, but I don't think it's it doesn't scale with genome size in a way that's that's perfectly predictable or linear. I think that it, so the the result is that you know if you have just species with larger genomes like like giant sequoia they have more mutations total number of mutations but on a per base pair basis it doesn't increase nearly as much as uh, or, or decrease nearly as much um, as it does yeah the so, so so they have much more dna that doesn't really matter a whole lot and therefore it's fine if uh, they have a lot more mutations total right so like the per gene in terms of you know, genes being the regions that code for stuff these uh, the per gene mutation rate is, is similar Exactly, um, exactly. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that answer. It's actually kind of interesting considering that they do live 2,500 years. So I do, mm -hmm. I wonder if those extra yeah. genes are doing yeah. something we just don't know yeah, about. So, 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 <laughs> so, so that's, you know, that, that's actually something we're, we're trying to get at right now. Um, Gray, I don't know whether we um, uh, talked about this, but there is, you know, the Na Napoleonic oak in Lausanne. So there have been a couple of papers. And so there are, I think the evidence is sort of um, out there, whether in trees, uh, the per generation uh, mutation rate is uh, the same as in, you know, short-lived plants or not, and whether they do some, some special trees, do they, you know, set cells aside that, you know, divide extremely slowly or not. So, Gray, we're actually going back to this specific tree in, in yeah. Lausanne and, and trying to see whether, you know, with a better genome assembly, we can get better estimates of what yeah. mutation rates are. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think for, for trees, it's really cool because, you know, they have all these these branches and as the branches are developing there, they can presumably be accumulating mutations. And so each and people have done this now in, in trees and you can sequence different branches in a tree and you can see mutations that arose, at, you know, sometime during development a long time ago. And you can see those mutations now at the tips of these of these branches. And so it's mm -hmm. kind of like a little evolutionary tree you know each branch is is, is accumulating mutations so yeah it would be i think it's going to be that's going to be really cool so yeah there was actually really nice uh, work from sally otto for quite a while for quite a while ago and this was very indirect but um she asked whether um uh, seeds from different parts of the tree was there any evidence that basically they became less uh, less fit with time, and that really is uh, what seemed to be the case. And then, of course, in humans, we know that you know older fathers, on on average, have uh, more mutations in their in their sperm than younger fathers. Right. Okay. May I ask my question? Now it seems to be a little bit more stable. Um, the question is that you mentioned about genome size and the mutation rate per basis. And then have you, I mean, of course, you're going to look at, besides the aeropodopsis, you're probably going to look at the elegance and then Drosophila, right? Smaller to animals, plant besides other plants, and then the so different organs. And one more thing I'm thinking is that, you know, like certain genes, besides mm -hmm. that class together, essential versus non-essential. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find the essential genes, because, mutations, because... They're dead, right? When you do mm -hmm. the selection, you, mm -hmm. you cannot discover them. Right. Uh, then the other question is that 
when you do the certain genes that turned on in the early on or genesis, spermatogenesis, and then later on they go on again, you know, into later stages. So they have this developmentally regulated. Mm-hmm. What about the rate in those two phases? Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Yeah. So, so, so one thing is, is so, so one thing that we do know that um, the timing of DNA replication that uh, certainly matters in terms of when a gene is uh, transcribed. That's also, you know, a super interesting uh, question because almost certainly at different phases of the life cycle, the DNA repair machinery is going to be, you know, active and uh, uh, active in, di- in different manners. Um, I, I think that would be a very cool direction to um, go into. I, I think uh, well, at least my lab will we'll stick with uh, plants. I don't know about you, Gray, whether, you know, you have ambitions to look in especially the human data, but certainly the human data would be would be a treasure trove to to look into because there uh, are you know gazillions of uh, mutations uh, um, known. Yeah, I think I think uh, we'll probably you know I think we're always open for collaborating with people who work in other systems. But as far as what we grow in the lab, I think we're going to stick with plants. But but you know some of these ideas and some of the sort of genomic comparisons um, do sort of lend themselves to, to looking across different species. And so we can look at, you know, the evolution of repair genes across the tree of life, for example, and that allows us to sort of expand in a, in a general sense. But experimentally, I think plants provide a really powerful system because we can, uh, we can, uh, yeah, we can, they stay in place and we can do different genetics with them. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm always happy. I'm happy to see, I'm really excited to see what, what the animal community does and looking at, you said, Drosophila and, and C. elegans and all these other great model systems. So I'm excited to see what, what comes out of that work as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just another point, I just wanted to address your question about, you know, essential genes and, and they, if they, uh, if they're mutate, how do we, you know, how do we know they're not mutating because mutations in them would be lethal? And that's an awesome question because, you know, that's obviously something that would prove problematic. If, if, if all we were observing was kind of survivorship bias, then it's not really interesting. It's, we're just seeing selection and not mutation bias. And so one way that we, we can address this is we can look specifically at silent mutations. So we can ask, when it, so, you know, as you know, most, most mutations in genes are, um, uh, well, many mutations in genes are, are synonymous. So the change in DNA doesn't change the protein sequence or they happen in introns where they're not uh, affecting coding regions either. And so when we look at those two classes of mutations as well, we see that they are also much lower than expected by chance in essential genes than they are in other types of genes. So that appears to be the product of mutation reduction rather than, you can't really, it's, it's difficult to, to explain that as a product of selection because we really don't think that the selection on, on synonymous changes or intronic uh, variation is, is nearly strong enough to explain why they would be reduced as much as they are. Um, I, hope mm-hmm. that, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Maybe quickly, uh, Gray, in terms of organisms to look at, what I find really surprising that there hasn't been more work in bacteria, because they are, you know, um, uh, such a great system to to do that. So I hope that our work is an impetus for people who work on bacteria to go back and um, uh, measure mutation rate under a lot of different uh, environments again and in different species. Yeah, I agree. I do think that there's differences that are interesting between eukaryotes and prokaryotes, though, because you, the fact that chromatin is so complex and 
uh, you know, the epigenome is very, there's such, there's such big differences between the epigenome and, and, um, and prokaryotes and eukaryotes mm-hmm. that, that we have these nucleosomes and these histone modifications and all of this elegant genome uh, sort of chromatin biology that I think is part of the eukaryotic package of innovations that might explain that, that I think is different. And so I think we have to, you know, in terms of comparing bacteria and, and eukaryotes, I think we have to keep in mind that they have very different genome uh, biology so uh, right but but I, but I could imagine that bacteria you know came up with a solution that is different yeah, from what sure. eukaryotes came came well, up with what, so that's what you know um, uh, this beautiful paper by Martin Corana in 2012 where they find a similar bias to what we find in, in some some in a similar way in in bacteria and so they're you know they're they're suggesting that there's something in bacteria going on so I think it's it's yeah very much worth exploring for sure this is a, such a great paper. I mean, like four, four of them. Is it four, four related in the same journal, mm-hmm. in the same article? Yes. Mm-hmm. And thank you. Everybody's questions are stimulating. I really totally enjoy it. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to check with you. It's, um, it's an hour now. Um, I think um, Prakash, he came up to the stage. Are you okay with taking one more question before we close the room? Okay, cool, cool. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Katrin, and uh, thank you, Detlef. Uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, I know you're. Uh, you know, I've been following your work for a long time because we actually met in a uh, Arabidopsis conference in the nineties. I know. I know. Yes. Okay. So. Uh, the question I have is, if uh, so, if you put Evo Devo as a as a tool to further delve into mutation bias, mm-hmm. I always think that uh, you know we have in if you go you know because I've been working with crops and other things, and most of the time uh, the tools are developed around the concept of G by E. Uh, but I always ask the question, where is the D in the middle? So it's a G by D by E all the time. But the mm-hmm. D is only derived in retrospection with reference to after you arrive at a phenotype. Mm-hmm. So the question, uh, like when you have a, a concept like mutation bias, where do you see this leading forward in terms of kind of, you know, if you want to, for lack of a better word, forward selection that, you know, if you can, uh, is there a prediction that one can go through when you understand modules and gene regulatory networks and ask, where are these mutation biases lying within these things that are so critical for survival and that mm-hmm. is being selected for in breeding? For example, in yield increase or, you know, phenotype of the inflorescence or the stability of the architecture. Can we um, kind of rest our uh, uh, resolution questions with reference to regulatory elements, open reading frames or super enhancers? pioneer transcription factors. Is there a screening procedure that you're going to be working on? I'm, I'm kind of curious because I read your paper several times, mm-hmm. but you had hinted on it towards the end, but I was just kind of curious where you're going to take this further. Thank you. Well, well I mean, one direction is certainly what we alluded to already. You know, when you think about, you know, differences in development and plants, you know, it doesn't get much different than, say, sequoia and uh, arabidopsis. So that's definitely one direction, the very long-lived plants that have a very different uh, body plan and uh, architecture from uh, short-lived plants. That's one direction to go into. I, I admit I hadn't really thought about this, whether you know this is a process that might have been affected by um, uh, domestication and uh, improvement of, of, of crops, but that's 
really a, a, a that, that's a very cool idea and, and gray and uc davis what a better place than you know there isn't a better place than uc davis to uh, think about this whether there has been impact of uh, um, breeding on this is, is that yeah. something that yeah that uh, um, you're considering gray I mean, we're certainly interested in, in thinking about these processes and crops um, and thinking about how they affect crop variation. You know, for example, if mutation bias reduces variation across a lot of genes in the genome, it raises questions about for breeding, is this a constraint because there's a lot of variation that's missing because it doesn't it mutate very often? And is this interesting or important for thinking about the origin of genetic diversity that's used in breeding and crop development, and, and then yeah, has that has any have systems been perturbed in, in in through the domestication process? I mean, there's just so many cool questions for us to ask, and and yeah, I think it would be uh, quite interesting to ask these in crops. But uh, but also to your questions about development, you know, I I do think that all of these these mechanisms and the biology and the evolution there they are intimately connected to development because the mutations that get passed on to the next generation are the ones that have to happen in cells that contribute to the germline. And so it becomes, you inevitably start thinking about plant, you know, developmental biology of which cells and the meristem are accumulating mutations and whether or not they're going to get passed on to the next generation. And so it, there is an intimate connection, I think, between uh, the, the sort of developmental biology of, of ce uh, and, and cellular biology with, with the evolutionary processes because of, uh, because of the, the questions about what's passed on from generation to generation. So there's just, yeah, there's lots of, there's so many cool um, sort of uh, questions that emerge. Uh, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. been, I'm curious about, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. Uh, just, uh, just another point to, to that is that, you know, with the, you know, uh, at the at the institute where I work, you know, the span genomes of wheat, you know, uh, mm -hmm. ten plus one, and several genomes are being sequenced. Mm -hmm. So, is there a tool building exercise that will be going on to discern mutation bias across these span genomes? Because that'll be the most uh, you know, constrained data set that one can screen for these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because because uh, some of them are like, you, you can start with Einkorn wheat or Triticomuratu mm -hmm. and then come all the way to Estivum. Not worry about the priority levels, but you can have the gene sets and the regulatory mm -hmm. elements and yeah. then start building tools around it. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, Prakash, I think this is also, you know, certainly something that will be very much worth uh, considering whether, you know, ploidy levels has that affected uh, mutation rate variation in any any way because um, there is uh, um, relaxed selection and does that translate also in shifts in uh, mutation rate? I think that would also be um, super fascinating to study. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, you talked about wheat, and you know, there's all these there's different subgenomes, and there's some subgenome dominance, and in asking questions about do different subgenomes have different mutation rates, and what's the you know what are the consequences of that for for all kind you know for evolution and breeding? I think it's going to be really interesting, and so you know, I, mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what people what questions people come up with and pursue. I think it's going to be really fun to see. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for um, being here and answering all these questions. I had like no work because you even had to, like <laughs> you even ask questions each other. <laughs> so <laughs> this was great. And I hope you had to, you enjoyed this too. Yeah, and totally, please, totally. Yeah, yeah please thank come you. back anytime with updates about your research, other projects. We are always happy 
you know, to Super. have me here or listen in when we have other guest speakers. Of um, course, of course. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I could kick myself. I, I only found out uh, a couple of days ago that uh, you had Xenia on, uh, 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 on, so I would have loved to listen to Xenia. Yeah, 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 and yeah, I will definitely come back. As you, I guess you guys can see this, I have the little symbol. It's my first time on Clubhouse, so I'll be definitely back. This is really cool. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'll have, um, we have tomorrow, actually, at the same time, Dr. Kalsa, he will be talking about anxiety um, that is associated with autonomic hypersensitivity. And we have many more rooms coming up, so, and um, uh, Xenia, she said she will come back and maybe some of uh, her lab members will come back. So, you know, there will be more opportunities. So. Great. Super. Super. <laughs> Great. All right. Thank okay. you, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank Bye. You. Thank Enjoy you. the rest of your day, Bye. evening, morning, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.